Hello, everybody. Happy Thursday. I am excited to be bringing another one of our audition monologue special episodes to you today. And this one is for Romeo and Juliet. So I know there are a lot of Romeo and Juliet's happening at any given time. Hopefully, if you are auditioning or you know someone auditioning, you can point them in this direction to get some ideas for fresh new monologues to do. I wanted to say again, thank you to Dr. Mia Escott for coming on last time to talk about which Shakespeare character would win Naked and Afraid. It was such a great conversation. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly, highly recommend it. All of the text from this show, because I'm going to read through some monologues, can be found on our Patreon at patreon.com slash p2mpod. And uh, I'll put a couple notes up on our Instagram as well. So you can find us anywhere on the internet at P2MPod, TikTok, Instagram, and X, I guess. Uh, although I'm just kind of not posting there anymore because I don't want to. Uh, but enjoy the show. Welcome to Protest Too Much, a Shakespeare Showdown podcast where a guest and I go head-to-head each week, and you get to decide who wins. So, you are auditioning for Romeo and Juliet. Congratulations! I'm excited for you. This is such a fun, silly play. Uh, keep in mind it is a comedy until Mercutio and Tybalt die. It should be fun and goofy and full of love and life and absolute uh, chaos. So I really love Romeo and Juliet for those reasons. I think that there are some really great character archetypes in this play that we see in a lot of other Shakespeare plays. So it's a great one to start out with if you're starting out on your Shakespeare acting journey, or if you're far along in your Shakespeare acting journey, welcome back. So today I'm going to do a couple notes about characters in the show, just go over all the characters we're going to talk about. And then for each of those characters, roughly a couple are grouped up. I'm going to give two monologue suggestions that you could use in an audition that are not from Romeo and Juliet. So I guess to start, I want to remind y'all that every audition is going to be different and every director is going to be looking for something different with these characters. Hopefully you can get access to or ask the questions to find out what they're looking for in the audition that you're preparing for. But if you're going in with a blank slate and no direction, that's kind of where we're coming from here with my interpretation of these characters. So... We have got a whole slew of folks. We've got young folks and old folks. Now, I have done Romeo and Juliet with a 13 and 15-year-old actor for Juliet and Romeo, respectively, and it was beautiful and amazing and wonderful. I have also seen and done Romeo and Juliet with actors into their 30s. Orlando Bloom played Romeo at like, I don't know, 45 or something. So the world is your oyster. The Romeo is your is your oyster. And so when I'm referring to age of these characters, it's basically the young folks and the old folks. Romeo and Juliet is at its core a play about young folks who are failed by their community and failed by the old folks who are, you know, kind of keeping them in this antiquated sense of rivalry and fighting. So young folks, old folks, 
I like to play a lot with uh, gender in Shakespeare. I don't think that there is anything that says anyone in Romeo and Juliet has to be the gender that they are referred to in the original text. Shakespeare's super dead. So if there's a character in this that speaks to you, if, you know, the nurse sounds so exciting to you or Tybalt sounds so exciting to you and you don't identify with the gender written, I would say explore that character anyway. Learn these monologues, find the pieces of the character that you do enjoy and go in with an open mind for for who you're looking for in this play. So we've got the Capulets, we've got the Montagues, we've got our royal family and we've got our quote unquote neutral group in this play. In the Capulet family, we have Lord Capulet, who is a, a cranky old man. And then we've got Lady Capulet, who is a little less cranky, but she doesn't have a ton of control over the situation she's in. One thing I think that's really interesting about Lady Capulet that can sometimes be lost in casting is that she's not that much older than Juliet. So if we're looking at text age, Juliet is 13 at the start of this play. And Lady Capulet basically says, I was your age when I had you. So that puts her just 13 years older than Juliet. So looking at the age dynamics of Capulet and Lady Capulet, I think can be a really interesting um, way to highlight some of the failures that this community is serving its members. And then, of course, we've got Juliet. Juliet is silly and stubborn and fun. There is a really fun interview. If you all saw the uh, Macbeth with Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand, in an interview, Frances McDormand said that she sees the Macbeths as Romeo and Juliet grown up if they had grown up. So Juliet is fierce and fiery. She's the one who says, hey, Romeo, let's get married. She is the one professing her love first. She is the one who dictates to the nurse all of the things that she wants to see happen. So she's very in charge and in control of her life. Whereas Romeo, on the other hand, is very much a I will do what you say. I'm not really going to think about the actions that I'm taking before I think about the consequences that that might come after. So Juliet should have so much. Oftentimes we see Juliet portrayed quite waifishly or weak ingenuity, and it's really just not in the text. She is so full of life and so strong, and I think that that's a really overlooked part of this character oftentimes. Then we've got Tibble, spicy, fiery, doing whatever he's doing because the family says so, Tybalt. Uh, he has it out for all of the Montagues because of this generation's old grudge that he doesn't even know why he's fighting for. But he's spicy. He's fiery. He is he is fun. He's a little sexy in my mind. <laughs> Tibble is just a really great, fun, um, fierce character. Then we have the nurse who, again, so much fun. She is all over the place. She cannot follow one complete thought from start to finish. She talks when maybe she should listen a little bit more, but she just keeps going. She keeps rattling off whatever's in her brain. She essentially is Juliet's mother more than her own mother. She raised Juliet. So this is, you want to see why Juliet is so full of life and, and so fun. A lot of that, I think, is because the nurse was such a strong influence on her and the nurse is so full of life and so fun. Then we've got the nurse's attendant, Peter, 
who is just of the House of Capulet, along with Samson and Gregory. These three characters are, you know, depending on the production you're auditioning for and how many people that they're casting. They're part of the fight in the beginning. They're running around, biting their thumbs at each other and just having a a great spicy time upholding this feud. Then we've got the Montagues. Lord Montague and Lady Montague don't have quite so much um, emotional disaster as Lord Capulet and Lady Capulet. We do get the scene with the Capulets that Juliet says she's not going to marry Paris and Lord Capulet is not thrilled. But we can pretty much imagine that Lord Montague and Lady Montague would follow suit in that same situation if they were having those same conversations. Lady Montague is very emotionally in tune with Romeo. She's worried about him. They have seen him wandering off in the mornings, writing poetry in his room, all of the signs of a disaster. So they're super upset. They're really um, concerned about what is happening with Romeo. And that's a lot of what we see. So we see them in the fight in the beginning. Lady Montague is like, oh, you're so old. Don't go fight. And Lord Montague is like, don't tell me what to do. Pretty traditional Shakespeare parent stuff. And then we have sweet, sweet, dumb Romeo himself. He is so happy to be in love. He wants to be in love and he wants to be loved. And he feels everything so, so deeply. And I think that's something really beautiful about Romeo is that he is young enough in spirit that he hasn't let the jaded nature of everyone around him ruin him and his his quest for love he loves Rosaline and she doesn't love him back and it is the end of his world and then he meets Juliet if Juliet said she didn't love him it would also end his world and so I think that there is a there's a really beautiful thing about a character who lets himself feel everything it's also quite silly because you know he is throwing himself on the floor and sobbing in these moments where, yes, you've you've just killed Tybalt and you've been banished rather than executed. This is a blessing. The friar's trying to like shake him and, and tell him like we can solve this. And he just refuses to listen to that. And that's a key key thing about Romeo in the Macbeth tie. Macbeth also stops listening and that's when he starts to get in trouble. Right. So Romeo definitely follows suit there. He does not listen. He's headstrong. He's emotional. But again, he's just being failed by everyone around him without having any proper guidance on how to how to live in a world with so many feelings. Then we've got sweet, sweet Benvolio. Benvolio is the voice of reason. He's probably the most reasonable character in this whole play. Uh, pretty much he is there to say, hey, maybe let's not do this when everyone else is like, nah, we're doing it. So that's uh, Benvolio's role. He also does a lot of recapping. So this is going to be someone who has a strong sense of Shakespeare language and can handle long chunks of text because he does a lot of, oh, you asked me what happened. Here's everything that happened. Yeah, he's just a he's just a good, sweet guy. Good friend. Then we've got Balthazar and Abram, who quite similar to Peter, Samson, and Gregory on the Capulet side, are there for the fighting. They're there to run messages. They're there to to act as whatever their lords need them to be. All right. Then we've got our royal family. We've got Prince Aeschylus, who is not doing a very good job keeping things in line. He has lost control of this city. He might be a little exasperated. He might be a little angry. He is trying. He's grasping at every last straw to get these families to cooperate and chill the F out. 
but they will not. And then they pay for it at the end. Then we've got Paris, one of the most uh, underappreciated characters in all of Shakespeare, in my opinion, partly because Paul Rudd does such an excellent job being Paris in the Baz Luhrmann film, but also just because Paris is pretty sweet. He goes to Capulet and he's like, hey, can I marry Juliet? Capulet's like, nah, man, she's too young, but I guess if she likes you, that's fine. So he goes, he tries to make a good impression. He does everything, you know, by the book of the time. So in all, for all intents and purposes, he does everything right. And he's just kind of caught in the crossfire. He is going to to grieve at Juliet's monument. And that's when Romeo sees him. And yeah, of course, Paris is going to try to fight Romeo. He doesn't know they're married. All he knows is that the woman he was supposed to marry has died. And now now the rival family is trying to fight him. Like, trying to break into her grave? Nah, man. So he dies because of that. And a lot of times that scene is cut, but I think it's a really beautiful kind of sad, tragic end to to his story just to kind of show all of the collateral damage that happens because of this. And then we've got Mercutio. Amazing, perfect, wonderful Mercutio. Spicy, sexy, fun. Everything's a joke. Everything's a pun. Probably the kind of person that if he was your friend, you would need like a break sometimes. But when you're around him, like casually, he's the coolest person, you know, uh, everything that he does on stage is loud and big and bold. And this is a character that you really want to take chances with in an audition. You want to show how much personality you have, because when Mercutio is on the stage, you're not watching anyone else. And then we've got our neutrals. We've got Friar Lawrence. Again, for this, you're going to want to be able to handle long chunks of text because he talks a lot. He, he does not stop talking. He's always got a plan. He's always got a way to make things work for the person he's talking to. Now, that doesn't always mean he's thinking ahead in the full picture. His main goal is to end the feud. But the way that he goes about that really, I mean, it does <laughs> end the feud, I guess. But not in the highest survival rate. Then we've got Friar John, who is another friar, uh, supposed to deliver a message. Apothecary gives the poison to Romeo. We've got the chorus who comes in at the top of Acts 1 and 2 to give a little recap. And then we've got watchmen, musicians, and citizens. So a note about everyone. I'm going to go through our character groups. So we've got Romeo and Paris, who are kind of tied together as our, our sad boys. We've got Juliet. We've got the nurse. We've got our boss boys, Friar Lawrence, the prince, and the chorus. We've got our spice boys, Mercutio and Tybalt. We've got Benvolio. And then we've got our parents. Everyone else in this play, so Gregory, Abram, Samson, Balthazar, all of the watchmen, the citizens, etc. Everyone in this play lives in a state of heightened emotion. Everyone is living with a sense of urgency. So all of the monologues that I'm going to talk about, you could use any of those for any of these characters. The watchmen and the citizens at the end, they're either, either fighting and defending themselves against rival families, or they're finding the dead bodies of Paris and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the musicians, I, first of all, if that scene should be cut. It just shouldn't be there. But if it is there... They've got big emotions. Juliet has just died and they're trying to figure out how to move on with the gig that they were supposed to be doing. 
Um, the servant at the beginning trying to invite people to the Capulet Ball, but he can't read. He's stressed. Everyone is so emotionally charged. And so any one of these monologues should work for whoever you are looking at to play. Also, another note, a lot of these monologues are from Torilus and Cressida because it's an almost perfect mirror to Romeo and Juliet. Very different ending. But there's a lot of similar archetypes in that show. So you're also not going to see a lot of that at audition. So if you want to do something that's a little underdone to stand out, that'll serve you well. All right. So let's start with our sad boys. I guess sad is they're not always sad. Sometimes they're in love. But it's just a little sad in the way that they're trying real hard for things that don't work out for them. So this is Romeo in Paris. I've got two pieces here that I feel like are so good and so obvious, but pretty much no one's going to use them because they're from plays that nobody does. So we've got Valentine from Two Gentlemen of Verona, Act 3, Scene 1. And he says, And why not death rather than living torment? To die is to be banished from myself, and Sylvia is myself. Banished from her is self from self a deadly banishment. What light is light if Sylvia be not seen? What joy is joy if Sylvia be not by? Unless it be to think that she is by and feed upon the shadow of perfection. Except I be by Sylvia in the night, there is no music in the nightingale. Unless I look on Sylvia in the day, there is no day for me to look upon. She is my essence, and I leave to be, if I be not by her fair influence, fostered, illumined, cherished, kept alive. I fly not death to fly his deadly doom. Tarry I here, but attend on death. But fly I hence, I fly away from life. Tell me not of banishment, right? Like this is honestly a more beautiful speech than Romeo gets, but the spirit of it is the same. It's a little less whiny, a little prettier, but... It's the same idea when he's talking to the friar. I cannot be banished and every mouse and tiny little thing gets to stay here and see Juliet. And I can't be here. Like, I, I, I be merciful, say death. So this is a, a great speech. Also, if you are a fan of Shakespeare in Love, this is the piece that um, Viola uses to audition. And it just, what light is light if Sylvia be not seen? Every time I hear that, I just think of Shakespeare in Love. So that's also a fun little nugget for you. Um, and then we've got a piece from Troilus uh, in Troilus and Cressida, Act 3, Scene 2. This is the the flip side. I tried to do, if you need two contrasting monologues for your audition, I tried to make the pieces that I chose contrasting in nature. Um, so this is a piece that's like, excited and in love, Romeo. Troilus says, I am giddy. Expectation whirls me round. The imaginary relish is so sweet that it enchants my sense. What will it be when that the watery palate tastes indeed loves thrice for pure nectar? Death, I fear me, swooning destruction or some joy too fine, too subtle potent, tuned too sharp in sweetness for the capacity of my ruder powers. I fear it much, and I do fear besides that I shall lose distinction in my joys as doth a battle when they charge on heaps the enemy flying. Even such a passion doth embrace my bosom. My heart beats thicker than a feverous pulse, and all my powers do their bestowing lose like vassalage at unawares encountering the eye of majesty. 
I think this piece is really amazing because it has a lot of layers of Romeo in it. It has this joyful, lovesick nature, but it also has that like little bit of supernatural fear of death. Romeo a lot in the play says, I feel like we're going to die because of this. Uh, right before they go to the Capulet ball, he says, you know, I am afraid that something's going to start tonight and it's going to lead to my death. It does. And so there is Juliet also. I think I see thee now as one dead in the bottom of a tomb. Like these children are are so in tune with the fact that this is so dangerous and it's going to end poorly, but also so in love that they just kind of don't care. So this piece from Troilus, I think, reflects that quite beautifully. All right, my girl Juliet. So these are two pieces that, again, are a little bit in contrast to each other. The first one... um is her emotions after the death of Tybalt when Romeo's been banished. The second one is that balcony scene kind of of joy and revelation of love. So Imogen from Cymbeline, Act 1, Scene 1. This is an intercut piece. So there's like a little bit of a line, maybe two lines in the middle, but I feel like it flows together pretty well. Oh, dissembling courtesy, how fine this tyrant can tickle where she wounds. My dearest husband, I something fear my father's wrath, but nothing always reserved my holy duty, what his rage can do on me. You must be gone, and I shall here abide the hourly shot of angry eyes, not comforted to live, but that there is this jewel in the world that I may see again. Nay, stay a little, were you but riding forth to air yourself, such parting were too petty. Look here, love, this diamond was my mother's, take it, heart and keep it till you woo another wife when Imogen is dead. Again, there's that like sadness to it um, as he's climbing out of her window and, and leaving her, you know, for the last time. They don't know that yet, but we do. So you see this, this sadness and this very adult perspective on his banishment, but also full of, full of emotion and, and fear. And then we've got Cressida. <laughs> from Troilus and Cressida, and she has uh, this really, really fun speech. Hard to seem one, but I was one, my lord, with the first glance that ever, pardon me, if I confess much, you will play the tyrant. I love you now, but not till now so much, but I might master it. In faith, I lie. My thoughts were like unbridled children grown too headstrong for their mother. See, we fools, why have I blabbed? Who shall be true to us when we are so unsecret to ourselves? But though I loved you well, I wooed you not. And yet, good faith, I wished myself a man, or that we women had men's privilege of speaking first. Sweet, bid me hold my tongue, for in this rapture I shall surely speak the thing I repent. See, see your silence cunning in dumbness from my weakness draws my very soul of counsel. Stop my mouth. So again, this really mimics the fact that Juliet is driving this relationship by the reins, holding it by the reins. What's the saying? I don't know. But she's in charge. She is asking for a kiss. She is is telling him that she loves him. She is is acknowledging the fact that she should have kept it hidden better, which also Juliet does in that balcony scene. Um, the mask of night is on my face or else the you would see me blush for what I've said tonight. And so... It's a really fun kind of all over the place, youthful 
a little bit chaotic monologue. It's really fun. And I think it captures the spirit of a fun Juliet really nicely. Speaking of fun, here comes the nurse. All right. So two pieces for this. We've got less contrast in these because they're really just the nurse's full speed ahead. She is a, a train a coming and there's very little to stop her when she gets rambling. Um, so both of these pieces reflect that. The first one is Mistress Quickly from Mary Wives, Act 2, Scene 2. Mary, this is the short and long of it. You have brought her into such a canaries as tis wonderful. The best courtier of them all when the court lay at Windsor could never have brought her to such a canary. Yet there has been knights and lords and gentlemen with their coaches, I warrant you. Coach after coach, letter after letter, gift after gift, smelling so sweetly, all musk and so rushling, I warrant you, in silk and gold and in such allegiant terms and in such wine and sugar of the best and fairest that would have won any woman's heart. And, I warrant you, they could never get an eye-wink of her. I had myself twenty angels given me this morning, but I defy all angels in any such sort as they say, but in that way of honesty. And, I warrant you, they could never get her so much as sip on a cup with the proudest of them all. And yet there has been earls, nay, which is more pensioners. But I warrant you, all is one with her. Oh, this speech is so good, and it's so... Similar to when she sees Romeo, when she's off to sent to find Romeo from Juliet. And it's that, you know, should you lead her into a fool's paradise, as they say. One of the things about the nurse and Mistress Quickly, she's got these little speech patterns that she repeats, which makes her feel so real and so full as a character. But the I warrant you of Mistress Quickly or the as they say of the nurse, I think is a really fun mirror there. And then this is the last Torellis and Cressida monologue, I promise. Uh, but this is Pandarus from Torellis and Cressida. It is an intercut piece. Basically, this is like, I don't know, maybe 10 lines put together, 10 of his speeches put together with Cressida talking in the middle of them. But Cressida isn't really adding much to the conversation. You know, this speech from Pandarus is kind of like, Cressida is just interrupting him as he goes. It's his one train of thought. So it works as a nurse piece because it kind of, it feels a little jumbled. It feels a little rambly. So this is from act one, scene two. He says, I swear to you, I think Helen loves him better than Paris. I am sure she does. She came to him the other day into the compassed window. And you know, he has not passed three or four hairs on his chin. He is very young. And yet will he within three pound lift as much as his brother Hector? <laughs> But to prove to you that Helen loves him, she came and puts me her hand to his chin. I cannot choose but laugh to think how she tickled his chin. Indeed, she has a marvelous hand, I must needs confess. And here she takes upon her to spy a white hair on his chin. But there was such laughing, Queen Hecuba laughed that her eyes ran over and Hector laughed. They laughed not so much at the hair as his pretty answer. Quoth she, here's both two and fifty hairs on your chin and one of them is white. Two and fifty hairs, quoth he, and one white. That white hair is my father, and all the rest are his sons. Jupiter, quoth she, which of these hairs is Paris, my husband? The forked one, quoth he. Pluck it out and give it him. But there was such laughing, and Helen so blushed, and Paris so chafed, and all the rest so laughed that it passed. This to me feels a lot like the, uh, Juliet bumped her head and said whatever she said in that scene with Lady Capulet. 
and Juliet when she first talks about marrying Paris. So there's silliness, there's storytelling. She's recounting or Pandarus is recounting this moment that happened that was so joyful and so full of fun that that he clearly holds as a good memory. And that's a lot of what the nurse does as well. All right, moving on. We've got our boss boys. So these are a li- these speeches are a little longer just because, for the most part, the chorus and and Friar Lawrence have longer chunks of text. So you're gonna want to show that you have command of that. So the first one is naturally Friar Francis from Much Ado, Act Four, Scene One. This is also intercut. It's just uh he's got a little chunk at the top and then he follows through with the plan, but it's. Pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. This one might be done a little bit more often for a Friar Lawrence just because it's very similar to the character, but I think that that's because it really shows what it needs to. So he says, pause a while and let my counsel sway you in this case. Your daughter here, the prince is left for dead. Let her a while be secretly kept in and publish it that she is dead indeed. Maintain a mourning ostentation and on your family's old monument hang mournful epitaphs and do all rites that appertain unto a burial. This well-carried shall on her behalf change slander to remorse. That is some good. But not for that dream I on this strange course, but on this travail look for greater birth. She, dying, as it must be so maintained, upon the instant that she was accused, shall be lamented, pitied, and excused of every hearer. For it so falls out that what we have we prize not to the worth while we enjoy it, but being lacked and lost, why, then we rack the value, and then we find the virtue that possession would not show us while it was ours. So it will fare with Claudio. And if it sort not well, you may conceal her, as best befits her wounded reputation, in some reclusive and religious life, out of all eyes, tongues, minds, and injuries. It's solid, it's planny. It it really mimics um, the way that the friar speaks to Juliet, especially. And then we've got um, the the second piece here is the chorus from Henry V. And this really kind of works for all of these characters because there's a little bit of anger here. This is when we're introducing the fact that there has been betrayal for Henry, uh, Scroop and Gray and all the, those those guys um they've betrayed henry and the chorus is like a little mad about it even though he's supposed to be impartial he's got some fire here so i think for friar lawrence gets angry with romeo when he's being stupid the prince is angry at everyone for fighting and it mimics the chorus obviously because it has this introductory here's what's going to happen kind of thing so the act 2 prologue from henry v goes, O England, model to thy inward greatness, like little body with a mighty heart. What mightst thou do that honor would thee do, were all thy children kind and natural? But see thy fault. France hath in thee found out a nest of hollow bosoms, which he fills with treacherous crowns, and three corrupted men, one Richard, Earl of Cambridge, and the second Henry, Lord Scroop of Masham, and the third Sir Thomas Gray, Knight of Northumberland, have, for the guilt of France, oh, guilt indeed, confirmed conspiracy with fearful France. And by their hands this grace of kings must die if hell and treason hold their promises ere he take ship for France and in Southampton. 
linger your patience on and will digest the abuse of distance, force a play. The sum is paid, the traitors are agreed, the king is set from London, and the scene is now transported, gentles, to Southampton. There is the playhouse now, there you must sit, and thence to France shall we convey you safe and bring you back, charming the narrow seas to give you gentle pass. For if we may, we'll not offend one stomach with our play. But till the king come forth, and not till then, unto Southampton do we shift our scene. Nice little original pronunciation, then and sen at the end of that. Yeah, it's just a really, I think it's a good strong piece. It shows a really strong sense of character. There's a confidence in it that all three of these characters, the fire, the prince, and the chorus have. So really great pieces just in general. I think this chorus piece is a great audition monologue for Shakespeare in general. You know, if you're just going out for a season or looking for something not specific, I think it's a good uh, way to show some some strength. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the characters that everyone wants to be in this show, if everyone means me, it's Mercutio and Tybalt. So I'm really excited about these two pieces because they're really mercutio and tybalt are two sides of the same coin right they're so wrapped up in fighting that it gets them killed i don't think they ever really mean it i don't think they ever would kill anyone on purpose i think it's all a show i think it's all a dance i think they're in love and i think that there's a great um playfulness about them and about their fighting it's only when romeo gets in the middle of things that it's screwed up their rhythm is off and mercutio ends up dying so There is spice and there is fight and there is anger, but there is also intense attraction between them. So the first piece I picked, obviously, is Aphidius from Coriolanus because as much as he is fighting Coriolanus all the time, he's also in love with him. So this is from Act 1, Scene 10. And he says, By the elements, if e'er again I meet him beard to beard, he's mine, or I am his. Mine emulation hath not that honor in it it had, for where I thought to crush him in equal force, true sword to sword, I'll potch at him some way or wrath or craft may get him. My valor's poisoned, with only suffering stained by him, for him shall fly out of itself, nor sleep, nor sanctuary, being naked, sick, nor fain, nor capital, the prayers of priests, nor times of sacrifice, embarkments all of fury shall lift up their rotten privilege and custom against my hate to Coriolanus. Where I find him, were it at home, upon my brother's guard, even there, against the hospitable cannon, would I wash my fierce hand in his heart. And this also is an intercut piece, two lines together. I just think that it flows really nicely. There's also a lot of like double entendre in here, sword to sword, that you can really, really play with if you are going for Mercutio, especially. And then the other piece is a little bit more, it's still Tybalt because it's still really angry and it's like, oh, I want to kill this guy so bad. But there's a lot of like um, magical stuff in it. So it feels a little bit more Queen Mab-y than the other piece might. And this is Hotspur from Henry IV, Part 1, Act 3, Scene 1. I cannot choose. Sometime he angers me with telling me of the Moldwarp and the ant, of the dreamer Merlin and his prophecies, and of a dragon and a finless fish, a clip-winged griffin and a molten raven. 
a couching lion and a ramping cat and such a deal of skimble scamble stuff that puts me from my faith. I tell you what, he held me last night at least nine hours in reckoning up the several devil's names that were his lackeys. I cried, hmm, and well, go to, but marked him not a word. He is as tedious as a tired horse, a railing wife, worse than a smoky house. I'd rather live with cheese and garlic in a windmill far than feed on Kate's and have him talk to me in any summer house in Christendom. So again, a lot of opportunity for double entendre. He held me last night at least nine hours. Hey, super Mercutio and Tybalt E. But I really love this piece because it's just, he's just so frustrated, but it does have all of these like fantastical terms and, and creatures in it that you can play up the supernatural element of the Queen Mab speech in this. So again, two kind of contrasting pieces for Mercutio and Tybalt. And then we've got Sweet Sweet Benvolio. So the first one is Camillo from The Winter's Tale, Act 1, Scene 2. My gracious Lord, I may be negligent, foolish, and fearful. In every one of these, no man is free, but that his negligence, his folly, fear, among the infinite doings of the world, sometime put forth. In your affairs, my Lord, if ever I were willful negligent, it was my folly. If industriously I played the fool, it was my negligence, not weighing well the end, and... If ever fearful to do a thing, where I the issue doubted, where of the execution did cry out against the non-performance, t'was a fear which oft infects the wisest. These, my lord, are such allowed infirmities that honesty is never free of. But beseech your grace, be plainer with me. Let me know my trespass by its own visage. If I then deny it, tis none of mine. And this is a place where Camilla is talking to Leontes, because Leontes has gone bonkers. And he's like, what did I do wrong? I think for Benvolio, it's more of a, I know what you're about to do is wrong. Let me try and uh, stave that off. Let me try and, and, and get behind it. And then we've got this piece from the captain in Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 1. And this is, um, I think, sometimes a little bit more dramatic uh, because it's a whole war he's recapping rather than like a skirmish in the streets. But you can take the character that you've decided Benvolio, your Benvolio might be, and and play it into that. So he says, doubtful it stood, as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. The merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel, for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him. From the western isles of kerns and gallow glasses is supplied. And fortune on his damned quarrel smiling showed like a rebel's whore. But all's too weak. For brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution like valor's minion, carved out his passage till he faced the knave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the knave to the chops and fixed his head upon our battlements. Pretty straightforward. A lot of times the prince comes in and is like, what the heck happened here? And Benvolio's like, oh. I'll let you know and it's a lot of this all right our last one we've got the parents Lord and Lady Capulet Lord Montague Lady Montague uh they all have very distinct personalities but I think what a, a director might want to see what I would want to see if you're auditioning for one of these characters is a range of protectiveness over your family and also intense emotion over your family so whether that is anger you can play these both in a couple different ways 
could be anger. It could be care. It could be um, worry. It could be kind of anything that you get to choose. So just because King Lear in this first speech is always pretty angry, you don't have to take it that way. You can find where your parental emotion sits, that, that intense, intense emotion, and, and play it that way. It's the best thing about Shakespeare is that you can do whatever you want with it. All right, so this is Lear, Act 1, Scene 1, um, which pretty closely ties into Lord Capulet in the hang young baggage speech. Let it be so, thy truth then be thy dower. For by the sacred radiance of the sun, the mysteries of Hecate and the night by all the operation of the orbs from whom we do exist and cease to be, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. The barbarous Scythian, or he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite, shall to my bosom be as well-neighbored, pitied, and relieved as thou, my sometime daughter. Come not between the dragon and his wrath. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Hence, and avoid my sight. Now, this is also an intercut piece, and I, I put the second part in um, because I think what's really interesting to show as Capulet especially, like if you're going for Lord Capulet especially, is how he turns this anger on everyone. So this first part, all the way to Is Thou My Sometime Daughter, is straight to Juliet, right? And then you've got Come Not Between the Dragon and His Wrath because the nurse is trying to say something or Lady Capulet is trying to say something. So like there's this like wild, violent shift that he is is taking it out on everyone, even if they weren't necessarily involved in um the the disobeying of him or whatever. So I think that it's a good way to show that bit of manic wildness. And then we've got a piece that I think is is interesting for for these parent characters. It's the Countess from All's Well. It's act three, scene four. And I think the Countess is a really cool character. She's one of the bright spots of that play, to be honest. Um, and this is just a very like... I, my son's being stupid. Everyone's stupid, but I still care very much about everything that's happening. Monologue. She says, what angel shall bless this unworthy husband? He cannot thrive unless her prayers, whom heaven delights to hear and loves to grant, reprieve him from the wrath of greatest justice. Write, write, Rinaldo, to this unworthy husband of his wife. Let every word weigh heavy of her worth that he does weigh too light. My greatest grief. Though little he do feel it, set down sharply, dispatch the most convenient messenger. When happily he shall hear that she is gone, he will return. And hope, I may, that she, hearing so much, will speed her foot again, led hither by pure love, which of them both is dearest to me. I have no skill in sense to make distinction. Provide this messenger. My heart is heavy and mine age is weak. Grief would have tears and sorrow bids me speak. To me, this really reflects a little bit of Lady Capulet at the beginning when she's pushing Juliet towards marriage. You know, she feels like Juliet is, you know, worth a, a happy marriage or a good marriage. But then at the end, and this monologue moves through all of it, um, obviously they've died. And that is heartbreaking. My heart is heavy and my age is weak. Grief would have tears and sorrow bids me speak. It's a really beautiful set of lines, and I think it's really representative of the adults in Romeo and Juliet. The Countess has done everything she can 
she thinks that's right, but her son is still a, a big old ding dong. Capulet and Montague have done what they think is right, but they've been so, so wrong. <laughs> and they're starting to see that now. All right. So again, um, the text of these will be, hopefully if you um, need them, uh, I've said the play and the act and scene number. So hopefully you can find them. If not, all of the the text, the PowerPoint presentation that I put together is on our Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash p2mpod and you can take a look there. If you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch. If you've got an audition coming up, please let me know. Find us at p2mpod on TikTok, Instagram, and X and let us know what you want to uh, see audition pieces for. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed. I, I hope you uh, knock them dead in your audition. Have so much fun. Really play with these characters. They're, they're good ones. And I'll see y'all next week. <laughs>